Thank you, everybody, for joining today's Salt Bitcoin Review. My name is John Darcy. I'm a director of business development at Skybridge, in addition to, to helping run the Salt programs here. Uh, we're joined today by Skybridge managing partner, Anthony Scaramucci. If you're here, you probably know who he is. And also by Brett Messing, uh, who's the president and chief operating officer at Skybridge, as we like to call him, our, our Bitcoin maximalist in chief here, uh, who, who helps lead a lot of our, our cryptocurrency and digital asset efforts. Just a reminder, if this is your first time here on the Salt Bitcoin Review, we like these to be very interactive. So there's a Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen on Zoom. Please submit your questions. We usually go for about uh, 25 to 30 minutes answering sort of the, the topics that we lay out in our newsletter each week. And if you don't receive that newsletter and want to uh, email us at bitcoinir at skybridge.com, we'll go through those topics, what we think are the most relevant news stories of the week, and then take your questions. Uh, but Anthony, let's start with you. You participated, uh, and, and I'm going to start with something that actually wasn't even in the newsletter, but you participated in a fireside chat a couple of days ago with Kathy Wood. Uh, you're not attending the Bitcoin conference in person, but you and Kathy uh, did a, a digital recording and also it uh, went out as a podcast on Bitcoin ahead of the Bitcoin 2021 conference that's run by Bitcoin Magazine. They sold out the event. It's about 12,000 people heading down to Miami. We bought tickets to this conference. Obviously, there's a lot of buzz and enthusiasm around that event. What do you think that says about the Bitcoin community and about what is built up around this asset class and just the enthusiasm that you have uh, from people in the space? Well, I mean, first of all, I think the enthusiasm is overwhelming. I think that it was uh, terrific to be on with Kathy for a number of different reasons, because you know, she has a very well thought out idea of where Bitcoin is going. It's very consistent with with Brett, myself, you, the Skybridge team uh, thinks about Bitcoin. Uh, but as it relates to that conference, John, you and I were at that conference in 2019. Uh, I think Bitcoin was six or eight thousand. I mean, we get the exact price. Uh, it had rebound off the 2017 low. Um, I spoke at that conference. Obviously, you and I were doing a tremendous amount of homework on Bitcoin at that time. Uh, and, you know, I guess what I would say to you is uh, there was probably a thousand people at that conference. And so today for that conference to have 12,000 plus people that they've extended it to and some of the largest players in the space descending on it, it's telling you what's going on. But I, I want to flip it over to Brett for a second because... In my conversation with Kathy, and I know he spends a lot of time on our institutional desk talking to institutional investors and the sort of coin bases and the NIDIGs of the world that traffic with the institutions. How how early are we, Brett? Yes, we've got 12,000 people descending on the Bitcoin conference in Miami up from 1,000 two years ago, but how early are we based on your field research? Um. I mean, I think you, you've said it best, like we're not even in the first inning yet. I mean, it, it's, it's um, I think it's truly amazing, you know, how early we are. And, you know, what, what you see in the launch of all sort of, let's say Bitcoin products, including ours, is a tremendous amount of interest and very low conversion rate. Um, and I, I don't believe that it's going to continue to be that case. I think that that Bitcoin is mainstreaming, it's pulling people in. It still is scary to people. I mean, look, we just had a 50% pullback from the highs and it was pretty violent in its, in its decline. And, 
And uh, so I think, you know, it's going to it's going to continue to take time, but it's, it's incredibly early. There was a statistic I saw this week that uh, Paul Tudor Jones, I guess, cited to Stan Druckermiller, which is that when Bitcoin fell from 2000, excuse me, from 20,000 all the way down to 3000 after the 2017 high, 86 percent of the people that own Bitcoin, you can track this on chain, did not sell. And, you know, it's that kind of sort of, you know, commitment is is why, you know, I think Bitcoin, you know, has this sort of network effect and is just growing. And then one, one anecdotal piece of evidence, which, you know, anecdotes are anecdotes. But I was in L.A. with a very good friend who actually used to run MTV and Comedy Central. And in, in the fall, sort of pitched Bitcoin on him and he was dismissive. And I saw him this time and he said, you know, my kids own it. They've made a bunch of money. And he's like, I don't totally understand this, but this is a cultural movement. This is not going away. This is going to be successful. I don't know how fast it's going to be successful, but it's going to be successful. And he, in his own words, I think without understanding Metcalf's law, was essentially articulating Metcalf's law. So, And you, you told me another story before we went live here about a large university endowment. The CIO of that endowment was trying to get a ticket last minute to the Bitcoin conference and couldn't get it. First of all, it's it's uh, impressive that you have a large university endowment wanting to attend a Bitcoin conference like this. And also the fact that there's so much interest that they they said no to this person. I think they eventually found a way to get a ticket. But amazing what's taking place down there in Miami this week. And from people on the ground, I've heard the buzz is palpable. Uh, and, and some people think maybe the conference isn't priced in. But that's a conversation for another day. But let's go into the topics that we covered in the newsletter this week. And so the first one uh, that we focused on was Carl Icahn. So, you know, we try not to make too big of a deal when any individual investor changes their mind on Bitcoin or decides that they're going to become an investor in Bitcoin because it's not going to necessarily move the market. But you have this pattern now, Brett, I'll start with you on this one, of Ray Dalio, Paul Tudor Jones, Bill Miller, Stan Druckenmiller, Dan Loeb, Howard Marks. That's sort of the A-list or the dream team of hedge fund managers, if you will, or legendary investors that live in our midst today that have all started from a place of skepticism and moved to a place of, I'm, I've either done a ton of research on the space and looking to make an investment soon, or I am long Bitcoin. Uh, what do you think that tells you about sort of where we are, the, the stage of Bitcoin that we're in, and uh, where people arrive when they go through this intellectual deep dive on the asset class? Well, like I think Bitcoin, you know, given the litany of people that you enumerated, you know, has been validated. Um, Carl Icahn was on CNBC talking about essentially that he was going to invest a billion dollars in cryptocurrency, which I think if anyone knows anything about Carl Icahn's history, it means he's probably already bought 80% of it. Um, but I, I think the more significant thing than these endorsements is really just at this point going to be the buying. Um, you know, Bitcoin is sloshing around here in the 30s, sort of building a base after, you know, a pretty violent correction. And it would be nice to have someone like um, Carl Icahn come up and, you know, sort of clean out the loose holders. I mean, that's how you tend to see, you know, prices lift when you've had a decline. Um, other things relatedly I'm looking for is, you know, we've, we've mentioned in the past that, you know, JP Morgan and, Ga and Goldman will be coming out. We expect this month with um, 
funds on their platform for their high net worth clients to access Bitcoin. Again, good validation, but the buying, I think, is, is, is what's more important. And then just last week, well, I, don't know, I can't remember if this is on the news uh, uh, letter, Wells Fargo came out with a big bullish you know, report, which is what all these banks do before um, announcing a product. And they're going to be rolling out a product. And I know that with certainty because it's not ours. And we talked to them about ours. So, um, you know, it'll be good to get those buyers in the marketplace um, because, you know, there is, you know, um, uh, the, you know, there is something about the Bitcoin price that affects behavior. So, you know, I'd like to see it sort of build a base here and start to move higher. So is the the Bitcoin correction good for Bitcoin, bad for Bitcoin? Um, do you think that people have said, whoa, it went from 12,000 when we originally, originally started building a position to 64,000, got itself cut in half, it's just too volatile, therefore I'm gonna take a pause? Or do you think that the correction is providing an entry point for people uh, to enter, where, where do you think? What do you think behavioral psychology is around Bitcoin? Okay, well, first of all, I hate the expression "healthy correction" because they all suck, right? So this was a, this was a brutally violent, painful correction. What's, what's so interesting about Bitcoin is you can you can see the data and you can see who sold. So who sold? It was mostly new buyers, right? So these were very you know short dated coins. That, that changed hands. And there was about $20 billion of measured loss amongst new buyers. Look, I think Bitcoin and the markets for that matter, I think this is a Darwinian moment. Um, making money is hard, okay? Being a hodler is hard. And in, in, a, in a total Darwinian uh, uh, sense, the weak hands have been flushed out and the people that hold, and that's what the on-chain data shows you is sort of the strong holders holding through this are gonna be rewarded. And you often use the analogy to Amazon stock and I think Tesla stock likewise, you know, you know, any of these companies that are part of emerging technologies have, you know, violent adoption curves and, you know, violent price movements. And, and, and I think the word volatility has come to be a bad word. Most of the volatility is up in Bitcoin, right? We went from, you know, 10,000 to 64,000 on a line in about six months. You know, the fact that we're trading now at 37.8, I don't know, it's just, it's not, it's not particularly surprising. Um, so, you know, what, what do you think, Anthony? Oh, let me, let me be a bit Bitcoin uh, skeptic. Let me be a troll for a second. I want you to respond. Uh, uh, but let me, I'll tell you what I think first, I guess, if it's probably where I should start. What, what I think is, you had over leverage sort of mini super cycle in Bitcoin, and you didn't even have much bad news. You had a little bit of China FUD, which frankly, if you study Bitcoin over the last 12 years, you get China FUD at least once a year, if not twice a year. You had some negative information around Elon Musk, but the great irony there, unless you tell me differently, Brad, and you're in touch with these institutions, it doesn't look like Elon Musk has sold any Bitcoin and has extensive holdings in Bitcoin, it is about as pregnant in Bitcoin as anybody in the Bitcoin space. So you've got some, some of those things pricking the bubble, if you will, and then you had over-leveraged tiering and you had a collapse down into the 30s and it's built the base back up into like, you know, 
let's call it 37,500 right now, because that's roughly where it's trading. But I want to be the Bitcoin skeptic. I'm going to put my Bitcoin skeptic hat on. I'm going on to uh, Bitcoin Twitter now as an anonymous troll. And I'm going to troll you on your account. And I'm going to say, well, it's over. You had your chance to sell at 64,000. And the Bitcoin story is over. And your response to that is what? Um, look, our story is built on two, two basic premises. One is just unfettered money printing throughout the globe. Um, I think in, in a prior session, we talked about how Stan Druckenmiller, when he was on CNBC, said when he first encountered Bitcoin, he thought it was a solution in search of a problem and that the Fed's actions and its change in policy in terms of towards inflation, what its goals are, and that that's, you know, being mirrored throughout the globe, that Bitcoin, now he sees the problem for which it is the solution. Um, the second is just adoption. Okay, and so yes, the, the institutional adoption I think is is going slowly, but you can look at new users, the number of users on the network, and so what you saw in the end of 2017-18 was the number of new users declining. Right, so people were leaving Bitcoin. Okay, they were sort of done with it, and what you've seen through this decline is back to Metcalf's law the number of users just continues to climb. Okay, so some people got flushed out, but we've had net new user growth through this. And that tells me that it's a bull market correction, you know, not, not the end of a cycle. And, um, uh, you know, look, anything can happen. I, I, I've said this before is that I, I disagree with the people who look at the shape of prior bull markets in Bitcoin and make predictions based on how long this is going to go or how far it's going to go, thinking it's going to mirror what happened in 13 and 17. I think it's going to be different this time. Um, my expectation is, is the bull market will be longer from a time standpoint, but somewhat shallower, right? So that, you know, we're not going to get to three, 500,000 this cycle. Um, I think you've publicly said we're going to get to 100,000, and and I, I I agree with that. Um, and uh, you know if that happens at the end of the year, it'll still have been a you know means we'll get a triple this year. So um, that, anyway, so those two things, money printing and adoption, as long as those are flashing green, you know I think you want to buy and stay long Bitcoin. So. Uh in the chat, we have a relevant question that I want to get to. You referenced some on-chain metrics, uh, some on-chain analysis, Brett, around who's selling and who's buying. What does is, what is the on-chain analysis tell us about this recent correction about, you know, just go further into depth about who's selling, who's buying? Is this a shift from short-term holders to long-term holders? Is it a shift from new buyers to people that have been you know, holding for longer periods of time? Um, you know, what does the on-chain metrics tell you in terms of the, the quality or the type of investors that are buying versus the ones that are capitulating? Well, I think, you know, you're seeing two things. One is with, Anth with Anthony, which Anthony mentioned before, is, you know, you had a cascading effect of levered buyers. And, I, and this is, I guess, something worth mentioning. In, in a lot of the unregulated derivatives and futures markets internationally, you know, people can get, you know, they talk about 100x leverage, but but it, that's uncommon, but it is common for people to have 25 to 50% leverage, 50 times leverage. And so 
Well, it just doesn't take that much of a, of a correction, right? A three or 4% correction and you get sold out, right? Essentially it's the, the, you know, automatic sell orders are affected by these exchanges and then one causes another. And so, so that's why we have sort of the speed and sort of violence of the decline and, and sort of that induced a lot of new buyers, you know, small, you know, small buyers, mostly retail, you know, who had bought in the in the 50s, you know, 50,000 ish range to sell. And what you've seen is very little. You did see some mining selling. I'm gonna come back to that. You did see some miners in China sell, but you primarily saw, you know, net buying from, you know, longtime holders, as well as an influx of new buyers. Right. So it was new buyers who bought high selling low. Maybe they get sort of knocked out of the game, and and but at the same time there are new folks who who are coming in, and and I, and I do think in, in something Anthony mentioned, I think again I, I hate healthy correction, but I do think that this pullback will provide an opportunity for Bitcoin to end up with a broader investor base. I mean I know of a number of people who did work on Bitcoin, were looking at it at fifty five sixty thousand and saying I like it. It might go to 120. I am not paying 60,000. I'm just not going to do it. Like I will miss it. Okay, I'm not going to be the guy who top ticks it. I'm, you can go to 120. And by the way, that's the approach I always had with Amazon stock. I missed it with Google stock. I missed it. So I understand that psychology. I think now those people feel like they're getting a bargain, right? And they don't feel sort of like the schmuck who's the last one to show up. And so I do think that you you end up with a broader investor base by virtue of this entry point being given. I mean, Anthony, way back in our, in our Goldman days, you covered institutional investors. Do you have any thoughts on, on that perspective? Well, look, I, I agree with the perspective, but I, but I also think what happens is this is a really robust and very deep market that has lots of leverage in it. It's also a uh, newly regulated market, and there are frontiers of under-regulation, including here in the United States. As an example, Brett and I were talking about ways that the potential uh, Bitcoin mutual funds could get approved by the SEC. And if you really sit down with your lawyers, it's almost like a Frankenstein concoction where the, the SEC looked at it, they'd say, okay, well, why don't we just let them have a Bitcoin ETF? And of course, if you had a Bitcoin ETF, You've now got uh, an easy thing for people to understand. Those pockets of demand would probably be driven into a Bitcoin ETF over everything else, over any other structure, a trust structure or a partnership structure. And so the under-regulation, the leverage component, I think those things are creating some, uh, you know, not some, tremendous price volatility. But if you're looking at core fundamentals and you want to examine why we like it. Why do we like it? We like it because it's the future of money or it's the future of value storage. It has all the components that we have studied as human beings to be that ledger for our society. And so it's an improved version, frankly, of any of the other ledgers that we've used, whether it's gold, seashells, you pick it, fiat currency, and a result of which it's coming, it's happening whether we like it or not. You use the Amazon analogy, 
And I can tell you those pullbacks in Amazon, some people said, oh, it's too expensive here. It's down 50%. And lo and behold, uh, they didn't buy it. And then it went up and then it went down again. And then they didn't buy it. Now you're sitting here, you're looking at the continuum. And there was a lot of this movement in the continuum, the up and down movement. But you had this 45 degree shot on Amazon. I don't want to miss this on Bitcoin. And that's why I'm telling people, uh, is it 1%, 2%, 3%? But I do think the adaption is slower uh, than a lot of institutions were writing about. But it's in line with what you and I predicted. Uh, but I bet you this time next year, Brett will be sitting here saying, wow, uh, you know, look at what happened. Look at what unfolded. Hopefully we'll get John to run a tape of one of our Bitcoin reviews from early 2021, and we'll put it side by side with a mid 2022 Bitcoin review, and you'll see. Wow, you know, why, why were we waiting? Why why didn't we take that leap that was that was necessary to take at that time? I I, I want to make a, a prediction as long as we're we're creating an archive of this, which is no one saw Michael Saylor coming. Right. Michael Saylor walked in and has bought over two billion dollars of Bitcoin and has done more to educate and evangelize than anyone else. Um, no one saw Elon Musk uh, coming. And I think when when the story is, is, is said, Elon Musk is going to have accelerated the greening of Bitcoin mining in a way that will be great for Bitcoin. You know, he, I would say he, he's been inelegant in his comments, but I think he's going to be a force for good. In fact, in your podcast with Kathy Wood, which I, I highly recommend, you know, Kathy goes on and, and, and makes a comment about Elon Musk. And we know I think she's one of Tesla's largest shareholders. I don't think she was guessing. I think in the next year, we are going to see another two enormous events that happen in Bitcoin. And I don't know what they are. But I was listening to a podcast today and it was plan B said that in most, I think it was almost every year of Bitcoin, if you missed the 12 best trading days of Bitcoin, you had a negative return. Okay, so that, you know, a substantial percentage of the return is coming right in, in a dozen days and you have no idea when those days are going to happen and you have no idea what event might trigger them. And again, I, I, I'm predicting, you know, it's an unknown unknown, but I think that I think we're going to see, you know, two big events in the coming 12 months. Well, let, let's talk about something that could uh, manifest itself as one of those big events. Another news item that we covered in the newsletter this morning, Apple, uh, they had a job posting, obviously people reading tea leaves here, but they're looking to hire someone senior that has experience in alternative payments. And that includes digital wallets, that includes buy now, pay later. Uh, that includes fast payments, and that includes cryptocurrency. It's spelled out right there. That obviously doesn't necessarily mean they're going to integrate Bitcoin per se, Brett. Uh, but what do you think someone like Apple, who obviously looks to stay ahead of certain trends, what do you think Apple is looking to do in the space? And do you think it could involve Bitcoin at some stage? Look, at the end of the day, Apple wants to grow, right? And you know, what's the next big growth driver for them? You know, they already have Apple Pay, you know, digital payments um, is just an, and, and mobile banking, right, is an enormous opportunity. And, I, and 
you know, some of these large tech companies, you know, I think have been resistant to get into those business because of regulation. But now, you know, you have a situation where Square and PayPal are getting to be very large. Facebook is going to announce a digital wallet. And, um, and I, you know, I think it's, 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 it's very likely that Apple does something, you know, very large in the space. Anthony, how do you look at the Apple news? Well, I, I think it's predictable. I mean, I'm not going to name the firm, but we went to a firm in November and we said, hi, would you like to host and domicile our Bitcoin digital asset fund? They said, absolutely not. We have no interest in a Bitcoin digital asset fund, nor will we domicile and or administer it. Uh, fast forward, uh, today's June 2nd or 3rd, uh, they have a Bitcoin fund that they themselves are launching that they're domiciling at their bank. And so uh, Apple saying they're not going to be in it and giving what Apple wants to do as it relates to its wallet, what it wants to do as it relates to having that piece of machinery that's on your body be literally permanently on your body, where they're measuring your sleep through your uh, phone or they're measuring your exercise activity. They want you to use that phone to transact with, whether it's at a Starbucks or a CVS. And so they have to be in that space. And if you really understand the macro dynamic of digital fiat currencies, uh, Bitcoin will be the gateway for digital fiat currencies as well. I just want to put, you know, point out something before I turn it back over to Brett. Uh, my good friend, Mike Novogratz, tweeted, I interviewed Kathy Wood recently. She's wicked smart, I guess. One thing I have found in life is that people who are really successful have something special. Kathy sure does. Okay, then he tags. I'm a little saddened by this, so I'm just it's slowing me down a little bit because I'm getting emotional. <laughs> this is a free therapy session. Yeah, it's a free therapy session. Then he tags my joint panel discussion. So on Anthony Scaramucci from Mike Novogratz, crickets. Okay, crickets. Okay, so of course I texted him this morning. He tried to make me feel better, but it really, it really didn't make me feel better, John. Just and a couple of people have asked in the Q and A about uh, that live stream that's now posted on demand, but it's called the Institutional Landscape for Bitcoin, uh, hosted by Bitcoin Magazine. You can find it if you just Google that. Kathy Wood, Anthony Scaramucci, the Institutional Landscape for Bitcoin. It's gotten a lot of attention. Actually, we've gotten a lot of notes on it. It was a great session for certain. But Brett, you've always said on this show and elsewhere that you're, in your eyes, the biggest risk to Bitcoin is regulatory. So last week, you guys weren't on the show, but we had Winston Ma, uh, as I referenced earlier, formerly of CIC, the uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund of China, currently a professor at NYU and a lawyer by trade, on talking about China's decision to take their regulation of Bitcoin a step further and basically try to root out any decentralized cryptocurrencies out of their economy that includes settlement, that includes any transactions, that includes mining. Um, India has sort of been, will they or won't they? There's been sort of a, a vacillation that's taken place between lawmakers and the Supreme Court there about whether you can or can't do business with crypto exchanges and crypto entities. Still, technically, it is legal there. And this week, they came out with another note uh, that basically reversed an informal edict that, that came from uh, certain lawmakers around regulation in India. There's also more noise about the Biden administration potentially taking a negative tone towards cryptocurrencies 
given just the rampant speculation that you've seen in the marketplace. Are you growing any more concerned about the impact that global regulation could have on Bitcoin, Brett? Or do you think this is par for the course and Bitcoin is unstoppable? Um, I want to take all three of those. So let's just start with India. You know, a month or two ago, there was a lot of concern. India is banning Bitcoin. India is not banning Bitcoin, right? So if we were going to light our hair on fire when they were going to, they have definitively said we are not banning Bitcoin. Of course, they could change course again. But as we sit here today on June 2nd, they are not banning Bitcoin official proclamation. The Biden administration has two goals. They want you to pay your taxes and they want you to not use Bitcoin for illicit purposes. Those are, in my mind, incredibly reasonable policy objectives, which I support, okay, and which will make it easier for institutions to buy Bitcoin. So I think people need to just chill out, pay their taxes, and like look at where the administration is focusing their energies. Lastly, which is most interestingly, is what's going on in China. What's going on in China could be the most significant event and, and, and hasn't fully played out yet, okay? So this ESG movement, okay, is just gathering more and more steam, okay? And I think it has led some institutions to press pause, right, on investing in Bitcoin. And, you know, Elon Musk not taking, you know, payment of Bitcoin for Tesla, no one was doing that anyway. It was a symbolic statement. Um, I spoke to someone who was in at the meeting with, Elon and the miners, and he said he was getting pressure from his biggest shareholders to sort of make a statement. And 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 um, so this ESG issue is a big deal. The Chinese miners are the dirtiest miners in the world. So China cracking down on Bitcoin mining in China is a great thing, okay, for Bitcoin. And the first step that they've taken is that. Inner Mongolia, which is one of the largest provinces for Bitcoin mining, it's all coal mining there. Okay. And they're shutting it down. And they're really shutting it down, not fake shutting it down. They're really shutting it down. You're going to see a substantial increase in North American mining. North American mining now is 10%. We project it will get to 20 or 25%. The North American miners are highly committed, okay, to renewable energy. Okay, so this is an incredible positive. The, the second thing is, is that one of the attack vectors on Bitcoin is that it's controlled by China because there's so much mining there. Okay, and so as you reduce that mining in China, okay, more and more, and it gets decentralized around the world, and I don't care if it goes to other bad actor countries like Kazakhstan and Russia and Pakistan, the fact that it's sort of more dispersed will be very positive and it will end that attack vector. So I, I think what's happening in China um, needs to be followed very closely and I think could, could be the most positive thing that happens in 2021. Anthony, do you agree? I, I, do, I do agree, uh, but I also think that the China FUD China FUD is always going to be with us. There'll be some kind of scare always coming out of China. And what's interesting is whether China shuts down half or two thirds of Google or all of Facebook, it didn't have great consequence to either of them. They still scaled pursuant to Medcast law, you know, uh, and I, and I want people to recognize that like, um, 
And this is something my old boss used to say. Brett and I worked at Goldman Sachs together. I remember being down one day and uh, I walked in. I was a financial uh, consultant, whatever you want to call it, an FA, a private client person at Goldman. I walked in. I said, well, you know, client's giving me a hard time. Client's giving me a hard time. Yes. What are the what's the client giving you a hard time about? Well, we bought XYZ securities and they're down. And I remember my boss looking at me saying, well, you know, what does the client expect that? you buy everything is supposed to go up, that there's an expectation that you you buy something and then the minute you buy it, only thing that happens is it goes straight up. So if you just stop and think about it and you you intuit that that is, can't even be because obviously there has to be risk associated with reward. And if Bitcoin were, was as obvious as it is to Brett and I to the other billion people that are about to buy Bitcoin, John, uh, well, then it would already be at 150 or 200,000. Same way Amazon day one, if it was obvious in 1997 that Amazon would be where it is today in 2021, it would already be at 3,000. So, so, the, so the point I'm making is, yes, I agree with Brett. I think he's going to be right long term about what he's saying about China. But China, FUD, and the notion of FUD is going to be with us. And then one day people are going to wake up. And they're going to say, okay, wow, Bitcoin, despite the grudging, despite the negativity, the fear, uncertainty, and the doubt, Bitcoin became a long-term strategic institutional core asset. And it was right there in front of me. Peter Thiel said it better than I can say it. And I'll paraphrase what he said. He said, it's probably the most obvious investment of our time. Yet because of that, there's a general reluctancy around it. Brett, I have a question for you. And it relates to Peter Thiel's comments and his general frame of mind. You know, he's sort of a libertarian, small government uh, type of guy. President Biden just unveiled a $6 trillion spending plan that includes sort of historic levels of spending on infrastructure, social safety net type programs. It's basically the largest sustained spending plan that if, if it goes through that we will have seen since uh, the the New Deal, um, since the Great Depression. Uh, do you think that is a catalyst for Bitcoin at all? There's a lot of people that say, oh, Bitcoin is a inflation hedge. That's what really drives it. There's other people that say, you know, that's all sort of performative and, and that's not really the catalyst that drives Bitcoin higher. Do you think that, you know, turns people on to Bitcoin more? No, I definitely think it is. And I look, I think once throughout history, and Anthony actually speaks well well more intelligently and articulately about this, but in the history of, of governments, when they start printing money, you, you, you can't turn it off. And I also think that, you know, today we just have such disparity in wealth that you're getting essentially universal basic income, but you're just not getting, they're not calling it that, right? You know, the Fed is targeting full employment, um, you know, there's all this kind of social programs, um, and uh, and I, you know, I just I just don't see us turning back. And and I think again, you know, Stanley Druckermiller believes. I keep quoting him because again, I I think I suggested a couple of weeks ago, the half an hour CNBC interview he did, where he he didn't mention the word Bitcoin until like minute 29 when Joe Kernan asked him was just a raging bullish you know argument for bitcoin for the the, the very reason that that you um that you asked the question 
you know, just in terms of, of what's happening with fiscal and monetary policy. Right. Um, another question about regulation, Brett, we have multiple questions in the chat around, has your base case based on uh, noise emanating from the Biden administration, has your base case around a Bitcoin ETF changed? Do you still think in your mind that it's going to come potentially in Q4 of this year? Or do you think that timeline might have been delayed a little bit? Um, look, I still think it's likely to come in, in Q4. I would say that people are growing more bearish on that. There's a sense that the volatility is going to is going to cause, you know, the, the uh, SEC to pause. You know, to me, it's a little bit I don't want to date myself, but in the movie Casablanca, you know, th th there's this famous line, you know, I'm shocked, shocked to find out there's gambling here. It's like, I'm, is, is it really surprising to anyone or the SEC that there's volatility in Bitcoin? And look, Bitcoin suffered a peak to trough decline of 50 percent. And everything's fine. The infrastructure around it didn't break. Um, we have no bankruptcies. We have no bailouts required. It is a very well-functioning market. It's a developing market, so there's volatility. But no, I, 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 I think what Gensler is, Gensler has said, and I understand this, what he would like to see is the exchanges like Coinbase, Gemini, Kraken, where you transact, he would like to see them regulated right, as a precursor to an ETF. Okay, to that, I say, I would like to play in the NBA, okay? Nothing is happening in this Congress. They cannot get nothing done. Okay, he also wants more money for the SEC, okay? So, you know, short of it being stuffed into a reconciliation bill, I don't see Democrats and Republicans coming together, right, to give the SEC more, you know, regulatory oversight. So, you know, again, I think it's always great to have a wish list. He said his wish list. It's going to be clear that he can't get it, and then he's going to approve an, an ETF. How big of a list, Anthony, do you think of institutional investors there are that are saying, "I I like the asset class. I want to buy Bitcoin, but I have to wait uh, until we have more regulatory clarity in the U.S. Whether that's a Bitcoin ETF approval or that stamp of approval that says we're not going to tax this uh, in an onerous way or some other heavy-handed type of regulation." So the fact that Ray Dalio, Paul Tudor Jones, Dan Loeb, Stanley Druckenmiller, uh, who are titans in their space, in their field, and I think everyone would, would say on this call that they are institutions uh, and they're leading thinkers. And we do know that places like Mass Mutual, and we do know that endowments like Harvard and Yale own Bitcoin. I think that that is the tip of the spear. They're sort of the earliest adopters. They're the frontier. And if you got approval, I think you would see a, that whole sleeve. If you think about that pyramid, if they're the tippy top of the pyramid, I would you would see that whole next layer build in underneath them. And then it becomes a fait accompli, John, uh, where the rest of the society flows in. Moreover, I think one of the reasons why you don't have an ETF in the United States is the fear, frankly, that that ETF causes an explosion in what Brett was just talking about, you know, the Casablanca-like gambling. And I think uh, it's inevitable. We're going to have a Bitcoin ETF. I'll predict on this call that it'll be likely by the end of the year. I don't see how the SEC is going to want to keep America out of the digital asset or crypto business while other countries are going to gain jobs and growth an opportunity in America, which has been at the forefront of technology since the moon landing, 
is going to be left out of the equation. I don't think they want that. Uh, so, you know, I do think once they approve it, you're going to see a whole new swath of people enter the space. And I think, look, I, 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 on a bottom line basis, the argument for an ETF is considerably stronger than the argument against an ETF. I think the thing that they worry about, which Anthony is alluding to, is that rightly or wrongly, for better or worse, it is the U.S. government putting a stamp of approval on Bitcoin, right? Just as it was when Morgan Stanley rolled out a product, right? There's before and after. Morgan Stanley didn't used to have a product. Now you do have a product, so you must have a different view on Bitcoin. And, and I do think that, that that, as opposed to any real market structure issues, is is um, is why we don't yet have one. Right. So we have a few questions in the chat. I think this is a good good place to wrap up is around Ethereum. There's, I think I've noticed a growing amount of noise on social media uh, in the crypto sphere and even people that are looking from the outside that are intrigued by Ethereum. And we're going to ignore the other coins for a second, but there's, there's a narrative that some people think there's going to be a flippening, if you will, where Ethereum overtakes Bitcoin as the largest crypto asset because one, it's on a path to being more sustainable from an ESG perspective uh, through potentially uh, proof of stake rather than proof of work uh, for mining and also that it has more practical use cases with NFTs uh, and it sort of acts as that entire layer uh, for the decentralized finance movement. Do you agree with that, Brett, that Ethereum could potentially wrestle market share away from Bitcoin over the next year or so? Um, yes. Look, I, I, I think that Ethereum, it has a larger addressable market, okay, in terms of what it's trying to, to do, okay? Bitcoin is, there's beauty in its simplicity, okay? So in success, do I think Ethereum could be bigger than Bitcoin? Yes, I do. Um, however, Ethereum is subject to substantial competition from Binance Smart Coin, from Cardano, from Polkadot, probably from things that haven't even been invented yet. Again, not to go back to Druckermiller again, Druckermiller thinks that, that Ethereum is gonna be MySpace, okay? That it was the first mover and a lot was learned by its, its, its rollout, but also from its problems, which will open the door for people to improve upon them. Whereas Bitcoin, which while it's an incredibly ambitious project is actually much more modest in its ambition relative to Ethereum. Um, so, yeah, no, I think Ethereum is extremely interesting. They're the leader. Um, if they can build on that lead, um, I, I think I think it could be the case that Ethereum is bigger than Bitcoin. I, I think that Ethereum probably potentially has more upside with a, with just considerably more risk. And I think what, what you are starting to see, and, and, and you, you're right to note it, is investors taking sort of an 80-20 kind of approach, right? 80% in Bitcoin, you know, 10 to 20 percent in ethereum and uh you know i like my bitcoin hat but i i i see the wisdom of that approach in fact our friend um eric peters at one river that's the, you know um who was also an early you know early meaning you know the fall of last year adopter into bitcoin um you know his fund has that sort of 80 20 mix anthony you have any thoughts on that no i think it's well i think it's well said and you know remember uh I think he's got, uh, I think he's got Clayton on his board uh, as former SCC commissioner. So, you know, Eric is a forward thinking guy. Um, commissioner Clayton, the SCC commissioner, 
was a, a slow roller of Bitcoin. He's now back in the private sector, having been a partner at Sullivan and Cromwell and then the SEC commissioner for four years, uh, has rolled himself into a Bitcoin-centric organization. So um, all good, all good facts, you know. And again, you know, Brett, it's good to mention something that you you've said to people here at Skybridge. The price is moving around a lot, but the news continues to get exponentially better and better for Bitcoin. If you just stop and think about who's adopting it, who's bringing it in, what's really going on with India, why the China stuff is good news, while the the tweet uh, from Elon Musk or the several tweets from Elon Musk, uh, yet he owns uh, arguably at least a billion and a half dollars of Bitcoin, if not five billion across his personal holding SpaceX and Tesla, um, the the news continues to get incrementally better despite the movement of the prices. And so that's usually a good sign that the fundamentals will track uh, that news. All right, we'll wrap it up there. Uh, We've covered a lot of ground this week. Just a reminder, we're going to start making these available, uh, the recordings of these on our SALT YouTube channel and via podcast the Salt Bitcoin Review. It's an individual podcast feed. Should be up and running in about three or four days. So if you arrive late to these or you have to leave early, uh, another way that you can catch up on everything we talked about. But uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in to this week's Salt Bitcoin Review. We'll see you back here again next Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern time.